I love the fact that Beth sent me a picture probably an hour and a half ago, and the kids, Tefa and Ajuma's kids, were there like an hour and a half early, and they wanted to get good seats. And so she sent me pictures of them. So hello, kids. I, I will see you again soon. Cannot wait. But uh, before we get going this morning, let's just pray, because the Lord has taken me so many places this morning, has given me so much, (laughs) I truly need his organization. Father, we worship you and praise you. We thank you, Lord, for your love. We thank you for your grace and your mercy, God. We thank you for your favor. Oh, but most of all, God, we thank you for your son. We thank you, Father, that you did not leave the fall what it is. But from the very beginning, you had a plan of redemption. But just not a plan to escape fire. Not just a plan to be saved from hell. But a plan to be with you. A plan to replace the very relationship that was stolen from you in the garden. To further your intent of bringing this world into a place of subjection under you. Because, Father, under you there is joy. Under you there is peace. Under you there is life. And the nations rage. The nations rage to come against that very plan. And that rage is all within what you have deemed necessary. This line of division, this choice. Father, I give you my mouth, I give you my will, my hands, my feet. Everything about me, Father, is yours. I ask that you speak what you want this morning. That I put nothing of myself in there. I thank you, Father, for the times that you allow me to just sit and listen. I ask for that this morning, because I know it will be you. Father, you have already prepared hearts to hear. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear what it is that you want. In Jesus' name, amen. Every time this morning that I thought the Lord would give me an opening thought, he'd give me another one. They all kind of go together. So, God, to be honest with you, I'm not sure exactly where to start, except I want to share with you where my heart is. 
See, yesterday a bunch of us, and, and most of you know this, a bunch of us went to the sight and sound play Esther. What an awesome play. It was great. What a phenomenal story. And if you've ever been to a play at Sight and Sound, you know it lacks nothing on Broadway. In fact, and Lex and I have been to many Broadway plays, in fact, it's so much better. <laughs> Certainly the content. <laughs> but it's, it's truly awesome. Phenomenal theater. Because the original theater had burnt down, they rebuilt this new theater. And it, it just amazing experience. Very biblically accurate. The voices were phenomenal. The singers were, were phenomenal. And I'm watching this, and I'm just engaged in the story. I'm, I'm loving the story, and you all know the story of Esther. And, and just really engaged with this. And then I get a text from the queen. In Nigeria, and Michael had gotten the same text. We were not together, but he and I both got it at the same time, and, and we commented on a board that we're a part of. This <laughs> it wrecked me, changed everything in terms of my mood, in terms of where my heart was at, and I'll tell you why. What she sent me was. No different than what I am sent just about every day now. About the violence in Benway. About the violence toward the Tief people. The, the violence that comes at the hands of radicalized Islamists toward Christians. But that isn't what upset me. What upset me was looking around in the realization that 99% of certainly this country, but most westernized countries, most first-tier countries, have no clue what it's like to live under that. Have no clue what it's like to live in the violence and in the persecution simply because you're a Christian. See, even I didn't know growing up. And, it, and it's, it is and it isn't the fault of Americans. For ourselves, I mean. It isn't because we grow up in a, how we grow up. Right, right, we go, grow up in an atmosphere, even even in, in an atmosphere of poverty here in America, is very different than most places in the world. But we've not grown up in a area where we have war or on our own soil, where we have these advances against our core beliefs on our own soil. I mean, maybe here and there but not on a large scale. And it just affected my heart so much to think of the lack of knowledge. And then, this may, this may be the stupidest thing, but boy, it irritated me. I'm driving out of there, 
And you know how it is when you go somewhere and you're driving out and there's traffic everywhere and everything else. And, and I'm driving out and we, we just came from just an amazing God time. And this person in front of me is trying to get over into this other lane so they can turn left. I'm just patiently behind him waiting and waiting and waiting. And then there was this little opening where they could move over and they started to move over. And literally, the person behind that sped up so they couldn't get in. I wanted to jump out of my truck. I really did. It irritated the snot out of me. And then I pull up next to these people after this person gets in behind them. And I just wanted to look at them. I just had to look at them. And they're laughing and they're carrying on. And I'm thinking, you have no clue. You have no clue what you're supposed to be in the bride. Because we're so easily distracted by crap. We are. We're easily distracted by things that mean nothing. Man, we've been waiting a long time here. We pour into prayer because it makes a difference. Honestly, it is one of the few weapons in our bag. In any Christian's bag, by the way. If you're not in a place to make a physical difference, you are in a place to make a difference in prayer. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. That's King James. Right? That's James 5. In fact, let's turn there. Let's turn to James chapter 5. I'll read it from the ESV. James chapter 5, verse 16 Therefore, confess your sins one to another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Let me explain what this means. First of all, there is a disclaimer here. It does not say that all prayer is powerful. If you think that, then you have missed the boat right away. It says the prayer of a righteous person. The prayer of one whose heart is sold out going after God with everything they are. One who walks in purity. Now this is not about some checklist that I live my life in this checklist. We've talked about that before. You can live by a checklist. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't blah. I don't whatever. I don't do all these things. I walk in purity. I am righteous. And yet you can be just as filthy as anyone else. Because that's not what it is about. It's about your relationship with Jesus Christ. What a shock. Greg's going to talk about relationship again. No. Right? But that's what it is. 
It's your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It is the heart's intent of who you are before Him. How hungry you are before Him. Do you know He said, when we seek Him, we'll find Him. If we're thirsty for Him, He gives us drink. If we're hungry, He feeds us Him. See, that's the difference. That's the, what it's talking about when it says a righteous person. Let's look at the rest of it. The prayer of a righteous person, of this person seeking relationship with Jesus Christ, laying it all out there in one-on-one with Him, has great power. This is not dunamis power. Look at the Greek there. It's a different type of power. This is an effective power at the time it is in operation. It is not a power that is thrust upon you. It is a power that you already have. It's a different power. See, dunamis power is power that is thrust upon you by the Holy Spirit. This is a power that already exists in you. Because it's your power of choice. It's your power of saying, I will drop to my knees, I will talk to God, I will lay out before Him all these things that He has laid on my heart. When we do that by choice, it says, it has great power as it is working. It has great power while we are doing it. That's why, by the way, we keep praying about things. We keep praying. It isn't about, well, God, you know, we, we really feel it's time for a building. And from the looks around, you guys know it's time for a building. Well, we already prayed about that once. I'm sure God could pull that up in the archives and, you know, be reminded of it. He's not going to forget Well, that's not what this verse says. This verse says it has great power when we are doing it, when we are praying, when we are coming before him. Why do you think Moses could literally change the the mind of God? You ever think about that? Well, that's semantics. I mean, God knew his mind was going to be changed, so technically it wasn't changed. He was planning to change it anyways. (laughs) You could spin your head right off with that. The truth is, he lets our hearts choose. Choose what we will be fervent about, what we will be passionate about, what we will ask him about. Sometimes that's healing. Physical. But it may not just be physical. Sometimes it's emotional healing. Sometimes it's literal deliverance from the demonic spirits that have hold. Oh, and he is coming in his power, by the way. That dunamis power is coming. It is coming. Do you believe that? It is coming. Because when it does come, it will be very different. But man, church, don't sit and just wait for that. You have the power in prayer to move mountains. 
Because there's only one ingredient that is required for that. And that's faith. Jesus said it, said it himself. The faith the size of a mustard seed can move a mountain. I know we can look at that literally. We can look at it figuratively. I receive both. Because I expect both. I almost think that it'd be harder for the figurative. Because mountain in the, in the Bible is, is a sense of government. Sometimes it's a lot harder to move a government than it is to move a physical mountain. I mean, we have bulldozers, right? But yet it does. Prayer moves mountains when it's infused with faith. That's why those of you who have a gifting of faith, and you may think, well, that, that's a little smaller than, you know, I didn't get the gift of healing, I didn't get the gift of this, of that, and everything else, which, by the way, Paul said, go after them all. But boy, don't, don't you for a second downplay the gift of faith. Because if you do, you don't even recognize your place. You don't even recognize what God wants to do with you and through you in terms of that faith. Because sometimes all it takes is someone to stand up and say, I believe. For it to become infectious to others to stand up and say, I believe too. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. We can't physically go over and do anything in what's going on in Nigeria. Trust me, I wish I could. That was what I was asked, Alexis, that's what I was wrestling with the most yesterday. Is I wanted to physically go and do something. It's not my control. It's not my power. But I can be on my knees. I can pray that Yahweh come and vindicate these people. And he will. You know why I believe he will? You know why I know he will? Because the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. It has great power while that one is praying. That's why we have a prayer call twice a day. We've had it for over four years. Every day. Get on it. Make a difference for your part. Unite with those on the call for your part. We have seen mountains move, have we not? We have seen mountains move. What's extraordinary is, is we'll be on the prayer call and a group of us praying about something specific and then the very next day it happens. I, I, I could tell you countless times almost that this has happened. Because the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. It makes a difference. Then the rest of it is standing up and letting him do through you whatever he wants to do. You know, one of the other things that, that Michael and I try to do and we do our best to do is to bring transparency. Bring 
just get people to notice what's going on over in Nigeria. Do you, do you know something drives me nuts? Wendy had sent out a, uh, a video. It was awesome. I, I appreciated her so much for sending this. She had sent out a video of, what was that lady's name? Heidi Baker, that's right, in Mozambique. Because they have had a clash of ISIS, basically what used to be ISIS coming against the villagers there in Mozambique, which is in eastern Africa, on the opposite side of where we are. And they have lost 1,600 now in the last five years. 1,600. See what drives me nuts? is we've lost almost 1,500 in the last four months. 1,500. Just yesterday, the, the queen sends me, sends Michael and I both this, this and she always sends pictures, and, and thank you, thank you for sending those. They're just so hard to look at. But just, just, Yesterday, 56 killed. She sends me pictures of these, what look like a field of, of uh, uh, yams, right? How the, if you know anything about, about Africa, they'll do the yams and they'll put them in these little mounds. And first glance at this field, it's enormous, it's huge. I mean, literally thousands of these mounds. And, and then you look closer and it's all... Shallow graves. Thousands of these shallow graves. And yet, we can't seem to get people to even pay attention. I don't know what that'll take. I really don't. But we're committed to it. The team there is committed to it. We have more moving there. We have more going there. Because we're committed to what God has called us to do, because we believe, if nothing else, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. When we follow him in his will, and we walk in his purity, guess what? We get his attention. That's how Moses changed his mind. That's how Abraham was able to I won't say argue, I guess he was negotiating over Sodom and Gomorrah because he didn't realize the facts of it. See, we can plead with God, but what's more is when you are pleading for something in his will, there's power in that. There's power in that. And I'll take it one step further. When you pray together in unity over his will, there's even more power in that. That's where he wants us to be. That's where he wants us to be. You know, I was given something else. I read it through this morning. But I want to read it to you. It's a story. Because we're, we're all here. We're all, I think, the same. 
I think most Christians, or, or certainly most fervent Christians, are the same. We just want God's will for our lives. We want to do what he wants us to do. The disconnect sometimes is maybe understanding what that is, because it takes time. It takes pressing into him. It takes that fervency of relationship with him to recognize what he wants, to recognize truth. And oftentimes that's derailed because of warfare. We have seen it a thousand times here. A thousand times. People that come to ignition, which is all about relationship with Jesus Christ, and the moment they set foot here, they hit this insane warfare. Now, first of all, if you don't believe in warfare, guess what? (laughs) You're about to be introduced to it. But if you understand what warfare is, you'll understand why the enemy wants to keep people away. Because the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man, a righteous person, avails much. And when that is combined in unity before the Father, it avails everything. Everything. I want to read this to you. This is a story I had... Uh, I had read it before, but someone someone sent it to me yesterday. And this time, it just hit me. hit me like a ton of bricks. And it, it's taken from, it's an excerpt from, from uh, Aggie Hurst's book. It's called The Inspiring Story of a Girl Without a Country. Have any, any of you read that, by the way? Awesome book. It's entitled, Not a Single Convert. In 1921, David and Svei Flood went with their two-year-old son from Sweden to the heart of Africa, to what was then called the Belgian Congo. This missionary couple met up with the Ericsons, another young Scandinavian couple, and the four of them sought God for direction. In those days of much devotion and sacrifice, they felt led of the Lord to set out from the main mission station to take the gospel to the village of Dolera, a remote, a very remote area. This was a huge step of faith. There they were rebuffed by the chief, who would not let them enter his town for fear of alienating the local gods. The two couples opted to build their own mud huts half a mile up the slope. They prayed for a spiritual breakthrough, but there was none. Their only contact with the villagers was a young boy who was allowed to sell them chickens and eggs twice a week. Svei Flood, a tiny woman only four feet, eight inches tall, decided that if this was the only African she could talk to, She would try to lead the boy to Jesus, and she succeeded. Meanwhile, malaria struck one member of the little missionary band after another. In time, the Ericsons decided that they had had enough suffering and left to return to the central mission station. David and Svei Flood remained near Dalera to carry on alone. Then Svei found herself pregnant in the middle of the primitive wilderness. When the time came for her to give birth, 
The village chief softened enough to allow a midwife to help her. A little girl was born, whom they named Anya. The delivery was exhausting. Sfei flood was already weak from bouts of malaria, so the birthing process was a heavy blow to her stamina. She died only 17 days after Anya was born. Something snapped inside of David Flood at that moment. He dug a crude grave, buried his 27-year-old wife, and then went back down the mountain with his children to the mission station. Giving baby Anya to the Ericsons, he snarled, I'm going back to Sweden, I've lost my wife, and I obviously can't take care of this baby. God has ruined my life. With that, he headed for the port, rejected not only his calling, but God himself. Within eight months, both the Ericsons were stricken with a mysterious malady and died within days of each other. Baby Anya was then turned over to another American missionary family who changed her Swedish name to Aggie. Eventually, they took her back to the United States at age three. This family loved Aggie, afraid that if they tried to return to Africa, some legal obstacle might separate her from them. They decided to stay in their home country and switch from missionary work to pastoral ministry. This is how Aggie grew up in South Dakota. As a young woman, she attended North Central Bible College in Minneapolis. There she met and married Dewey Hurst. Years passed. The Hurst enjoyed a fruitful ministry. Aggie gave birth first to a daughter and then a son. In time, her husband became president of a Christian college in the Seattle area. And Aggie was intrigued to find so much Scandinavian heritage there. One day, she found a Swedish religious magazine in their mailbox. She had no idea who had sent it, and of course she couldn't read the words. But as she turned the pages, a photo suddenly stopped her cold. There in a primitive setting was a grave with a white cross. And on the cross were the words, Sve Flood. Aggie got in her car and drove straight to a college faculty member whom she knew could translate the article. What does this article say? The teacher shared a summary of the story. It is about missionaries who went to Dalera, Africa, long ago. A baby was born. A young mother died. One little African boy was led to Jesus before that. After the whites had all left, the boy, all grown up, finally persuaded the chief to let him build a school in the village. He gradually won all his students to Christ. And the children led their parents to him. Even the chief became a follower of Jesus. Today, there are 600 believers in that village, all because of the sacrifice of David and Sfei flood. Aggie was elated. For the Hearst's 25th wedding anniversary, the college presented them with the gift of a vacation to Sweden. Aggie sought out her birth father. David Flood was an old man now. He had remarried. 
fathered four more children, and generally dissipated his life with alcohol. He had recently suffered a stroke. Still bitter, he had one rule in his family. Never mention the name of God. God took everything from me. After an emotional reunion with her half-brothers and half-sister, Aggie brought up the subject of her longing to see her father. They hesitated. He had recently suffered a stroke. You could talk to him, but he's very ill now. You need to know that whatever he hears, whenever he hears the name of God, he flies into a rage. Aggie was not deterred. Walking into a filthy apartment which had liquor bottles strewn everywhere, Aggie slowly approached her father lying in a dirty bed. Papa, she said tentatively. He turned and began to cry. Anya, I never meant to give you away. It's all right, Papa, she replied. Taking him gently into her arms, God took good care of me. Her father instantly stiffened and his tears stopped. God forgot all of us. Our lives have been like this because of him. He turned his face back to the wall. Aggie stroked his face and then continued undaunted. Papa, I've got a marvelous story to tell you. You didn't go to Africa in vain. Mama didn't die in vain. The little boy you won to Lord grew up to win that whole village to Jesus. The one seed you planted in his heart kept growing and growing. Today there are 600 people serving the Lord because you were faithful to the call of God in your life. Papa, Jesus loves you. He has never hated you or abandoned us. The father turned back to look into his daughter's eyes. His body relaxed, and as he listened to his daughter, the Holy Spirit suddenly fell on David Flood. And the tears of sorrow and repentance began to flow down his face. By the end of the afternoon, he had come back to the God he had resented for so many years. Over the next few days, father and daughter enjoined, enjoyed warm moments together. A few weeks after Aggie and her husband returned to America, David Flood died. And a few years later, Aggie and her husband were attending an evangelism conference in London, England, when a report was given from Zaire, former Belgian Congo. The superintendent of the national church there, representing some 110,000 baptized believers, spoke eloquently of the gospel spread in his nation. Aggie could not help going to ask him afterward if he had ever heard of David and Svei Flood. Yes, ma'am, the man replied in French, his words being translated into English. Svei Flood led me to Jesus Christ. I was the boy who brought food to your parents before you were born. In fact, to this day, your mother's grave and, grave and her memory are honored by all of us. He embraced Aggie for a long time, sobbing. You must come to Zaire. Your mother is the most famous and honored person in our history. 
When Aggie and her husband went to Dolera, they were welcomed by cheering throngs of villagers. Aggie even met the man who had been hired by her father to carry her down the mountain in a hammock cradle. Then the pastor escorted Aggie to see her mother's tomb with a white cross bearing her name. She knelt in the soil to pray and give thanks to God. And then this note was at the bottom. Although God mercifully restored David Flood to him before he died, he left behind five unsaved and embittered children. His anger toward God had totally wasted his life's potential and created a tragic legacy for his family. We should never underestimate one of what one act of obedience to God's will will do. David and Spade did not have a single convert they knew of. They thought it was all for nothing. But one seed took root before fruit er, and bore fruit beyond unbelief. I don't know about you, but that story just gripped me. We've heard stories like that where there are seeds that are planted that take root and bud and flower that we never get to hear about. That's not what gripped me here. What gripped me here was the motivation of David Flood. Why? Why did he go to Africa? Clearly it was because he felt the Lord telling him to go there. Why? Did he then turn on the very God that told him to go there? It's because his calling was not based and rooted in a relationship with the Lord. That's just the truth of it. What is our motivation for doing what we do? Are we motivated because we know that there's a God? We are saved. We know that there's heaven. We know that there are rewards. We know that there is blessing when we do what he says. We know that when we give tithe, he gives way more to us. I mean, really, it's not even like being obedient. It's really more like investment, (laughs) right? Are these why we do these things? Or do we do them because to please Our best friend is the most important thing in our hearts. Now, we can talk about this. We can hear this. It can enter in our mind. But if that doesn't seat heavily on your heart, you need to ask the Lord why. Because the motivation for you doing what you do has to be because a relationship with him. If not, the distractions will take you off course. In many ways, they could take away the very calling that you've been given in the first place. And if you don't believe me, let's look at some scripture on this. Paul talked about it. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 9. You know, Paul has these 
these great examples. And, and it gives this example of a runner running a race. And when you run, you run with the passion of winning. Why in the world would you want to run a race and not want to win? I, I don't know. Anybody in here enjoy running? Okay, two people. You guys are sick. I'm just saying. Very, very sick. We need to talk. We need to talk later. Okay. No, but nobody beats the snot out of their body to run in a race or to be an athlete without the joy of it. We just don't do it for that reason. We do it to win. We do it for what is the proposed outcome, right? For a large part of my life, I lifted weights. Not as large as Alex would like me to. <laughs> she would like it to be a much higher percentage, right? And, and the older I get, that percentage keeps going down. So, you know, anyways, we'll leave that alone. But when I used to lift weights, when I used to play football, there was a reason to go out onto the field and practice. There was a reason to put on the pad. There was a reason to watch what I ate. Although in my case, it was, man, you better just eat everything you can get your hands on because, son, I need you 20 more pounds. I mean, I won't, I won't get derailed there. Right? But we have a reason for doing things. What's your reason for pressing into the Lord? What's your reason? Is it because of the things that he gives you, the things that he promises, as we've said before? Or is it because it's him? Because he has revealed to you that he offers a friendship, a personal friendship, that you cannot have anywhere else. See, Paul laid it out that there are rewards. But clearly, based on our choices, we can be disqualified from those rewards. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And again, he goes through this running example. But verse 26. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul recognized, in fact, if you read his writings, you, you begin to read between the lines and recognize that, that, that there was a real, I won't say a fear, but there was, there was a real urgency in his spirit to make sure that his relationship with God was spot on all the time. Turn to Second John. John talks about this as well. Second John, John, verse 4. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children. And he, he, this is a letter, I believe, to Mary. John was, was given watch over Jesus' mother. To find some of your children walking in the truth. Just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment. Just as you have heard it from the beginning, so that I should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who, who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. 
Such a, such a one is a deceiver and an antichrist. But then pay attention to verse 8. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but we may win a full reward. See, John here recognized that it isn't about what you do at points in your life. Chalking up something that you just did for God. Well, awesome. Let me pull out my list. You know, I'm, I'm 57 now. I, I can pull out my list and I got this list of things that I did for God. There you go, God. I did that. Do you know that list means nothing outside of what it builds toward that relationship with Jesus Christ? Because it isn't those things that are eternal. But it's my relationship with him that is eternal. You know what? I got a really tough thought for you. This is something the Lord told me years ago. And it is a thought that I'm going to tell you 99% of the bride don't know and don't understand. Because it's a heavy thought. When you take your last breath on this earth, And first of all, I'm talking to Christian. I'm talking to those who are saved. Once you're saved, once you have accepted Jesus Christ into your heart, you cannot lose that salvation because it's not up to you. He did everything. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 said you, when you do that, you are sealed by the power of the Holy Spirit until you receive the promise, which is eternal life. So, uh, What I'm talking about here are saved individuals. They don't lose their, their salvation, right? But what happens, this thought that I said, is when you breathe your last breath as a saved person, that next breath you breathe, you are with Jesus Christ, the Bible says. You are in his realm. You are with him, but here's the thought. Your relationship with him is built by faith. You are no longer in faith when you have breathed your last breath. Because then you'll see. Then you'll see. 1 Corinthians 13 says that when you're with him, you will see him. You'll see him as he is. What you build now is the foundation of the relationship you will have with him for eternity. That's a heavy thought. That's a heavy thought because if you're counting on simply your salvation, your justification of sin, if you're counting on that for intimacy with him, you've been lied to. You've been fooled. That has nothing to do with intimacy with him. Your golden ticket to heaven has nothing to do with intimacy with him. Only relationship does. Only walking with him, learning who he is, letting him infiltrate your life on an intimate level. That's the only thing that brings us closer to him. Otherwise, there is loss. Because we continually take it upon ourselves to move forward. Well, you know what? Thanks for that help on that project, God. I appreciate it. Thank you. I got this now. 
I'll let you know when I need you again. Now, we never would say that, like, officially. But that's what our heart says. That's what our heart says when we don't spend time with him. That's what our heart says when we don't spend time with the bride. Because, see, what John said here is what Jesus had said to him. See, we're told to love. You know, in fact, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, I want us to turn to John chapter 15. You know, it's where Jesus says, I am the true vine and you are the branches. I love all that. But I want to go down to verse 12. Because he talks about what love is. And it's important that we understand this. Jesus says to his disciples, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. If you know nothing else, if you know nothing else about the word, that statement right there will take you the rest of your life to understand how Jesus loved them, how Jesus loves me, I am to love you. I don't know about you. Maybe you're a person that it's easy to love people. Maybe you're a person that it's really hard to love people. Maybe you're part of a group that's really hard to love. (laughs) Right? None of those are factors that are to be considered in our love because love isn't a feeling. Love isn't something that we just get back. Love is something we give. The idea is we want love back, but you can't make love come back. That's why Jesus gave you choice. That's why he didn't make you a puppet and make you love him. Right? We all have choice. And boy, has that put God through the ringer. It really has. I mean, think about it. I don't know. For those of you who are parents in here, you know this. For those of you who are not, imagine this. But, But when you go through things with your children where... They're just not making the wise choices or they're going the wrong way or, or in some cases really going off the deep end. How, how does that affect your heart? Right? It rips at your heart. It rips at God's heart when we don't recognize that he wants the intimacy with us, that he wants the time with us. He says, as I... Have, he said, love one another as I have loved you. Then he goes to explain the depths of what that means in verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friend. You are my friends if you do what I command you. What is, let's flip back. If you do what I command you, I've commanded you to love one another as I love you. Okay, then he says, To give your life for your friends. You are my friends when you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide or stay or consist 
so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. I've said this a thousand times. I'm going to say it a thousand more. If we get one thing in this life, if we understand one thing, that is relationship and love with the Father, relationship and love with each other. If we get just that, we've gotten everything. We've gotten everything. Because that's the very thing that Satan has gone after from the very day of Pentecost. The moment the church, that mystery that Paul talks about, was beginning to flourish. See, Satan went after the unity. Satan went after the love. You see it in Acts. You see it in the division. You see it in historical records. You see it how, how even the, the state church stepped in in roughly 200 AD and, well, we're, we're going to governmentally organize this and take advantage of this whole God thing. You see it throughout. And now what do we have today? We have evangelical churches, those who believe in basically the same thing. They believe salvation by grace, justification by grace. They believe in relationship with the Lord. And I'll just stop there because that you don't get more fundamental than that. So you have churches that believe that, that are so separated that they will not even talk to each other. How sad. How sad that we don't talk to each other because of doctrine. Really? That, that makes no sense. And, and yet, we fight as churches, and, and I'm going to speak really from a pastor's standpoint. We fight as pastors to gather as much in our own arms as we can because that is our ministry. That is our legacy. That is what we do for the kingdom. Oh, you blind fools. You blind fools. You do nothing for the kingdom. You do everything for yourself when you do not understand this right here. Love each other as Jesus has loved you. Did Jesus' love go so far as to say, I will not talk to you? I will have nothing to do with you. Our youth group cannot meet with your youth group. That's, that's just stupid. It's ridiculous. It's dumb. Why? You know why they don't? Because if somebody else is a little more passionate for Jesus Christ or has a little bit better, you know, music team or, or have a little bit better facility, Oh, we might lose them. How sad. How sad. We have no facility. (laughs) We do have an awesome music team, though. But I'll tell you what, that was built by God because I won't even go there. It's not how it started. But you know what? We have everything to give. We have nothing to lose. It astounds me that we try to go and connect with other churches 
and they don't let us. Praise God, by the way. Praise God. I'll say it on, online here. Praise God for the barn. Thank you. Thank you that they allowed our worship team to come over and just have a worship night together. Thank you. We're all the other churches. We're all these associations that meet together so we can be kind of like-minded, and then they leave the rest, 97% of the bride, out there that they separate themselves from. It's insane. It's stupid. It's ridiculous. What's worse, it's dangerous. Because, see, God is bringing a separation. He's been doing it for a couple of years now. But the reason my heart was so heavy yesterday wasn't just because of the people being killed. It wasn't just because of the attitudes that I saw or thought about in the United States. It's because the Lord began showing me what was coming. See, he's going to get our attention one way or another. The Lord has told us that there are some heavy things coming. I've mentioned it before that that there is civil war coming, that there is world war coming. I find it interesting that he said everything starts in Nigeria. And when Nigeria started ramping up in the violence, guess what happened? So did we. Do you know the violence is ramping up here in the States? You may not see it in your suburb home, but just turn on the TV. It made me sick. Forgive me, Lord. It made me sick today when I realized why flags are at half-mast. I I Googled it. Why why are flags at half-mast today? I I always notice that because I have a flag at my house, but my flagpole doesn't let me do half-mast. It's like up there. I would have to literally just take it down. So I always Google why, you know, if if it's an official that died or whatever. Because I knew, oh, certainly, certainly it's for Memorial Day weekend. For all those who have died that, that fought for this country, paid dearly, paid for their lives. But I thought, you know, that's odd because normally we just do that on that Monday. Do you know what it is? Flags were commanded to go half-mast by by Joe Biden because of the San Jose killing. Now, that is a tragedy. Now, by the way, for four days, from the 26th until the 30th, the only reason that they change it is on the 31st, it's to remember all those millions <laughs> that gave their lives. But right now, they're at half-mast because of a political statement. Because of people that needlessly had to die, was his quote. How about the people that needlessly have to die in the ramp-up of murders in 30 different states, or 30 different cities? How about the needless murder of 60 million babies? How about the needless murder in all of these places, the needless thing? You know, I was looking at at some of the statistics this morning about 
violence just in New York City. And it, it just blew me away how much it has ramped up. Not just murders, because that's what we key on, but rapes. Do you know there are more rapes in the first five months of the year here, if I was reading it correctly, than all of last year in New York? What about all those victims? Should, should we go ahead and make our flag half-mast for them? Now, honestly, we probably ought to leave our flag half-mast until we give this country back to God. Yes. That's just the truth of it. Yes. Because we have taken it away from Him. We've taken the very thing out of it that is supposed to be in there, and that is that we love one another as He loved us. When we do that, it will make all the difference in the world. All of the sudden, churches will come together. There will be a power in that because the effective, effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And when you put those together in unity, it avails even greater. We've seen that here in Ignition. We do that here in Ignition. Imagine 10,000 of us doing that. Do you know the chief of staff in Nigeria? And Alex, you can start making your way up. It, the, the chief of staff in Nigeria, he and I talked, and I want to say this started two years ago or somewhere around there. He has this vision of 10 million people in Nigeria all praying together for the salvation of that country. He gets it. See, he gets it. It isn't about let's bring in all this money from the states. Let's bring in this or bring in that. Let's do all these physical things. He said if we could get these people to unify in prayer together, it will change the face of this nation. Do you know the same thing applies here in the United States? I'll tell you what will save the United States. Only one thing. The fervent bride. That's it. That is it. Not the dismantled bride that doesn't play well together. In fact, God is going to dismantle them. He's told me that. But the unified bride praying together with purpose according to God's will. That will change everything. That's why we get together on these prayer calls. I want to encourage you. Encourage you. Love one another as he loved us. And take it before his throne. You're going to see this world change. Alexis, come on up. I am amazed at how the Holy Spirit works. Ladies, you know what I'm talking about. With what Holy Spirit had us teach on this morning downstairs, um, he clearly wanted an emphasis on prayer today. There is a strategy that I believe he's going to release even for ignition in to engage in to go after something um, very specifically. But I just wanted to mention, before we close out in prayer, the story that Greg told um, that was read today, 
was so interesting, and I kept thinking of the sadness of that missionary having been so distraught and giving up on God. And the reality is, imagining him in those moments when he and his wife, because the story said that they faced malaria multiple times, and you can imagine that in every one of those moments of suffering, you know, he had a choice to choose to trust God, to know that God is good, to know that God will work all things together for good, that to know that he is the Lord, our healer, and to trust him for whatever his plan is, to just believe that. And whenever you hear stories like that where the suffering gets to a point where I'm out, can't deal with it anymore, it has to be a reflection of not knowing the person, not having, that, that person rather, not knowing God and not having an intimacy with him. Because every time we choose God when we could choose something else, when we could choose um, a, a different coping mechanism or whatever, God obviously allowed the warfare to increase. And choice after choice, I really believe, is what escalated even the warfare. Because every we talked about this downstairs, but you know, every time we choose, when it's very difficult or very painful or very circumstantially not advantageous to our comforts, and we choose God instead of anything else, just that is a threat to Satan's kingdom. That's why James 5.16 says that the power that one of the translations says produces great results, avails much as produces great results. That's why there is such power in it, because it is the pure life. It is the consecrated pure life says to the enemy, whoa, they are in tune with the Most High God. See, Satan already knows who the Most High God is to his kingdom. He just goes after us because he knows we don't know who the Most High God is compared to his kingdom. And if he can snow us over, then he wins. So it really is our choice every single day. And I kept thinking about that man and what he must have, every time, how he must have felt in those moments of disappointment. And then at that that just that threshold of just surrendering and saying, okay, God, I know it's difficult and I don't understand what's happening. I still choose you. You know, he never would have been out. He never would have been out of the mission. But like the point that Greg made and that I remember having this paradigm that I was very concerned about as a Christian, I was a Christian when I was a child, wanting to do the will of God. That was very disconnected from what my daily reality was with God. I prayed. I read my Bible. But you know, sometimes we want to do these lofty things. I just, you know, yeah, I want to either I want to be a missionary or I, I want to do this and I want to do that for God. Because we're taught that all these things are important. But who is God when you can't overcome an addictive temptation? Who is God in the moment when you're too tired and yet you're feeling this compelling to read or to pray? See, if, if we know the Lord and we know his heart and we hear his voice, and we trust him for all those small things, the outcome of our life, those larger callings are just going to fall into place. But when you pursue a larger calling and you don't even know who God is, it's no wonder how many missionaries quit, how many pastors get what's called burnout. There is no such thing as burnout in intimacy with the Lord. Because true intimacy is a refreshing, a filling that every
every single day comes regardless of circumstances. There are a lot of pressures and circumstances. I don't want to minimize that. There's a lot of people that have suffered and are suffering right now. But the difference is, where are you with the Lord in that actual relational place? When I think of my marriage vows, for better or for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. The commitment before God as a vow in a marriage is that when times are circumstantially tough, I'm committed. I'm in this because I love you more than anything else. That is a picture of the bride, Christ, and the church. is a picture of marriage in sickness and in health. Not that it is his will for us to be sick, but when warfare hits us in plenty, rich or poor, no matter what comes against us, if we just surrender and choose him every single day, that's what brings the victory. And um, I just, I'm, I'm just amazed at, at how much the Holy Spirit, I'm, I'm amazed at how he works. And I'm, I'm humbled this morning, even in my own life. I knew he was giving me a strong, compelling to teach on prayer. But after this message, I feel like the Holy Spirit just gave me another, yes, I really, really, really want you to focus on going before me. Not just the prayer calls. You know that's what I say every time when we didn't, we, I come up here after the messages and promote the prayer call. But to be in that men not always to pray and not to faint, Luke 18, one place. That place where we're just talking to the Lord about everything. Where we're choosing him. Where we not only trust him to take care of these big things, but we trust him that he will give us the strength somehow, some way. When we feel like areas of our life are falling apart, we have no answers for anything. Um, those of you that went to the Esther play, um, one of the reenactment things that, that was in the dialogue at the early part of the story was, why is, this, why is this happening, Lord? You know, when Esther was first being taken and things were beginning to happen, they, and I said this to the ladies, they didn't know at that time what the end of the story was. They didn't know that she was going to be placed in a prominent position for such a time as this. They just knew that these things were unfolding in their lives and they had a choice to trust or to completely spaz and go into self-preservation. No, no. Mordecai could have reacted very differently. No, I will not let anyone take Esther. I won't. I'll hide her. I'll do something. But in every point, he cried out to God, why is this happening? But then he trusted the Lord and said, okay, I'm going to step. I'm going to step when I can't see. I'm going to step when I don't know. And that is what brought the outcome. It, it's just, that was such a great picture of even what God shared with us today. Esther is such a great picture of how intimacy with the Lord will allow God to use your life in ways that will blow your minds. And we believe, and I, the Lord has said it here in Ignition, if God has brought you here to Ignition, brought you to the remnant, he has brought you to a place for you to see and know what he is calling for you to be part of. In a significant place. God wants to use every single person in a very significant place. And most of us believe that. In the, yes, God, I want to do this. But do you believe him for right now today? Do you believe that he is the God that will help you cast down imaginations when you struggle with lustful thoughts? When you struggle with uh, unforgiveness? When you struggle with addiction or the inability to do this or do that? When, when you know you're supposed to. All these things, when God becomes personal and you begin to see him transform you in the little ways, you'll notice that every time you choose God, you're choosing 
and a step toward the bigger picture of how he wants to use you. But he wants to start right now, right here with us, as close as, as our breath. We sing that. It's our breath in our lungs. It's his breath in our lungs, so we pour out our praise. And I know for me, that was really huge, man. When God really transformed my life, he was like, Alexis, this isn't just about where I want to take you. This is about who I am to you. Hearing my voice, knowing that all these distractions, all these old parents, all these things that, painful things in my past, that yes, you can let go of. You can place them in my hands. You can get over this. You can fundamentally be transformed in me in ways you didn't think were possible. That, that was where I needed to be before I could be of any use to him. So don't be thinking just about a, a, an external calling before you just go to him and talk to him. Ex- believe that he and expect that he will talk back to you. He is a conversational real God. And hearing his voice, it was a game changer for me. Um, but I'm going to pray. And Father God, I just thank you. Thank you, God, that I'm, I can even access you right now in prayer. That I can even come before you and access you directly. Come me boldly before your throne. That I may obtain mercy to find help and grace in my time of need. What an amazing gift that is in this relational uh, invitation and opportunity that you've given us in salvation, God. Thank you. Thank you for this, God. But it's not automatic. You, you ask for us to engage in it every single day. But I thank you, God, for prayer. I thank you that I can talk to you. I never understood what praying without ceasing really was. But now I'm talking to you about everything. Knowing the thoughts you're putting in my head are when they're in line with your word, God. Are your voice guiding me, leading me? No, no. Stop, Alexis, and do this and do that. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, for transforming me, for constantly renewing my mind every day. Showing me who you are. Showing me who I am in you. God, I just, I'm in awe of you, and I thank you, God. I thank you that from this place of surrendered purity and faith-believing prayer, great results are produced. Great power is released from the power of my will when I choose you. Thank you for this message today. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for flowing and speaking through Greg. God, take this word Plant it deep in the soil of our hearts, God, that we might produce great fruit from it. You have given us continual choice. So I just pray right now in the name of Jesus that we would continue to choose you in the next few minutes, this afternoon, this evening. That everything I have planned, everything I do, that you are walking with me, you want to be included in every part of it. That you are a holy God, you are an awesome God, you are a mighty God. You are truth, you are the way, you are the life, but you're also fun. Your enjoyment, your comfort, your peace, your love, God, you are everything. I pray our hearts and minds would be opened to the fullness of who you are, God. That we might walk in your ways and in your will and lay down those things that are destroying our lives. There are any. Let them be laid down today. I just pray, God, that you'd expand the remnant, God. Grow us, God. 
We want to subdue and change this earth for your glory. In the name of Jesus. Amen. So with